From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Type 1 and type 2 diabetes are different diseases, but they're both related to a lack of the hormone insulin, and both forms of the disease occur in children. Monitoring and managing blood sugar levels is important for diabetics, but it can be challenging for children and adolescents. On today's program, we'll discuss pediatric diabetes with two Mayo Clinic experts. Also on the program, a new life-changing medication in the treatment of cystic fibrosis. We'll hear one patient's story and an overview of thoracic surgery. All that along with an update on the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic with the head of Mayo Clinic's vaccine research group, Dr. Greg Poland, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. There are more than 30 million people in the United States who have diabetes. That's almost 10% of the population. But they're not all adults. Yeah, there are close to 200,000 Americans under the age of 20 who have been diagnosed with diabetes. And here to talk about diabetes in the pediatric population is Mayo Clinic endocrinologist Dr. Anna Creo and Nurse Janet Hansen. Welcome both of you to the program. Thanks for having us. Good to have you both, because unfortunately, there are a fair number of kids in this country who have diabetes. You are a pediatric endocrinologist, correct? Yes, so I treat kids with both diabetes, but also all sorts of different hormonal problems that can be born with or they can develop in life. So insulin is a hormone? Absolutely. And what does it do? Why is it so important? Yeah, so insulin is a key hormone. There's receptors all the way in the body, all the way from down our feet into their brain even. And without insulin, it really alters the body's metabolism. Insulin is kind of like the lock and key that really when we eat food or nutrients, allows those nutrients to go into our body for storage. And can you live without insulin? No. So you have to have insulin to help the, the sugar get into the cells. Yes, without it. There's no place for the sugar to go, so kids start urinating more. It's lost in the kidneys. Kids can't then gain weight and really lose fat mass quickly. So it's, those are typical symptoms. They get thirsty and they urinate more often. Are those the two major symptoms? Yeah, parents notice all sorts of things. As, you know, in children, as diabetes come on, sometimes it can be pretty silent for a while. But in general, unlike adults, pediatric diabetes tends to be more progressive and progressive quicker. So there's oftentimes a period of feeling unwell, um, but then usually as the blood sugars are getting very elevated, people tend to know symptoms sooner. They start to be urinating more, drinking more. Kids can start to have just very nonspecific stomach aches as well. They might be losing weight. They might be eating a lot and still losing weight as well. What is juvenile diabetes? Because that's what it used to be called, or is it still called that? So it's really not called that anymore. It's it's now more called uh, type 1 diabetes. It also used to be called insulin-dependent diabetes. But because of the difference between type 1 and type 2, both could be on insulin. So it's now referred to as type 1, which uh, for us in, in endocrinology, we understand that that means it's an autoimmune disease. And so the root cause of it is different than type 2. Okay, explain autoimmune. <laughs> So autoimmune being that the cells of the body are, are looking at those beta cells, the insulin producers in the pancreas, and 
it's identified almost as a germ or a bacteria. So in similar ways, when we are ill, we have a, a flu or a viral illness, our body attacks those cells in order to help us become well. Because they look like germs, they are attacked, and over time, there aren't enough there to produce insulin. So the immune system is actually attacking cells that we really need. Correct. Yeah. So are we pretty convinced that diabetes type 1 is an autoimmune disease? Yes. Yeah, and we commonly now measure antibodies because sometimes it's not always easy to tell it's type 1 or another type of diabetes. There's most common types as type 1 where there's the autoimmune tack in the pancreas, but more and more commonly is type 2, even in children. And that is not autoimmune. That's associated with extra weight and the insulin not being able to work as well or insulin resistance. So we have heard that that type 2 is increasing, as you're saying. Is type 1 increasing as well? Both rates are increasing. So there's a good study that came out from our first pilot data from 2000. The rate of type 1 has doubled, but the rate of type 2 is also increasing. So right now, about 1 in 500 kids have type 1. And depending upon where you are in the country, about half that rate for type 2. So depending upon where your practice is and the populations in your practice, you could see as many type 2s as type 1. And the secret out there, too, is that there's even rarer types of diabetes that babies can be born with that are more associated with genes that have gone awry than an actual problem with autoimmunity or insulin resistance. So we do take care of those kids on rare occasions. So I can understand why there's an increase in the number of kids with type 2 diabetes because of the obesity epidemic. But how do you explain an increase in the number of kids who have type 1? You know, in general, we're seeing a higher rate of autoimmunity of multiple different types of autoimmune diseases in kids in the past 20 years. So type 1 diabetes is just like other things that are on the rise, like celiac disease, inflammatory bowel disease, and other autoimmune conditions in kids. Any other risk factors um, with regard to the development of type 1 diabetes? Yep. So having a sibling increases your risk a little bit. Having a parent with type 1 diabetes increases your risk a little more if it's from dad than from mom. Mm. Um, Other things that can increase your risk is it kind of travels in the same genetic tendency as other autoimmune conditions like celiac disease is a big one or autoimmune hypothyroidism. So it's kind of a same family of genetic tendency. So let's talk about the complications and and how important it is to control your uh, blood sugar, which is why insulin is so important. Because if you don't, there are some bad things that that can happen. Tell us about that. Yeah, there's a whole kind of range when we think about complications from diabetes. The more classic ones are kind of the long-term things you worry about in adults. So, you know, eye disease, microvascular disease, kidney disease, kind of atherosclerosis, and even early dementia and Alzheimer's. But as important now we're thinking are the more immediate complications of diabetes on the brain and development and sports, as well as adapting diabetes. So doing more detail, we've done a lot of research here at Mayo Clinic looking at the role of even kind of states of hyperglycemia on brain and cognition. Hyperglycemia means yeah, too high blood sugar, too much blood sugar on brain. And they're really even, you know, not even looking long term. If a child has a higher blood sugar, they have a change in their cognitive performance. So even with school and learning, it's really important. And then the other kind of, you know, it's not a medical complication, but just adapting diabetes to a child's life. We like to say we don't adapt your life to diabetes. We adapt diabetes to your life. But that in itself can be really challenging too. Right. And sometimes it's even parents adapting 
to that diagnosis. It can be really challenging to send your child off to school, whether they've had diabetes and now they're starting kindergarten, or you may have a teenager that now it's time to go back to school and they've just had diabetes for a handful of days. That can be pretty stressful. Or sending them to an overnight at a friend's house, um, sending them off on the bus to an away basketball game and not being able to be there um, is really hard for parents as well. And All right. Can, oh, even imagine, too, with, say, you have a toddler, an 18-month-old. You know, kids down to 18 months can get type 1 diabetes. All the usual food refusal, food battles compounded with the fact the child has diabetes and needs to eat a structured meal and structured program. It's just lots of challenges. All right. We'll talk more about that when we come back. We need to take a short break. We're talking about kids with diabetes with Dr. Anna Creo and Nurse Janet Hansen. When we come back, we'll talk about how they make the diagnosis of diabetes in kids and also we'll talk all about the treatment. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with two experts on pediatric diabetes, pediatric endocrinologist Dr. Anna Creo and nurse Janet Hansen. Would you say that most of the kids that you diagnosed are, are brought in because their parents notice something abnormal? You know, we notice a whole variety of patterns. There are common times of the year where diabetes tends to be brought up more back to school where the nurse notices, oh, they look a little bit different this semester. Or Halloween with all the candy because, you know, it kind of can bring out lingering diabetes on the verge of declaring. But sometimes, too, families just notice, you know, my child is just slowing down. Something's not right. They're losing weight. They're drinking all the time. We had recently, a you know, a young child that was just going to the bathroom over and over and over again, and it had been fully trained through the night. So all all kind of typical presentations, whereas other types of diabetes associated with obesity can be a lot more subtle, though those are picked up more on lab testing. So kids, most kids don't necessarily get a blood glucose or a blood sugar as a routine part of a, a well child again, right? No, no. So it's usually uh, the parents who bring them in because something's not right. Right. With the rise of obesity, it is recommended with obese children later to start to have some recommended glucose screenings. So we do pick up type 2 diabetes by lab testing, but not so much for type 1. And type 2 diabetes is where you have the insulin, but because of your body weight, there's not enough? Because the body it's there's sometimes not enough or just not working as well. And it kind of can snowball, too, in the fact that with more body weight and more insulin resistance, sometimes the pancreas has trouble keeping up. All right. Once the parents bring them in, how do you make the diagnosis? What do you do? So it depends upon how sick the child is. Some kids that are diagnosed with type 1 diabetes are very ill to begin with. The problem with untreated type 1 diabetes is that without insulin, that's kind of the lock and key to get the blood sugar in their cells, acid builds up in the blood. And so what we call that is diabetic ketoacidosis. So about 20% of kids are actually diagnosed when they're critically ill in with this acidosis at the VR. So sometimes we're so they come into the ER, you mean? We come into the ER, yep, yeah, really sick, and that's not uncommon. No kidding. Uh, You said 20% of of kids, and and then obviously um, you do a blood sugar and it's off the charts. Yep. All right. And um, there are two tests. Uh, Tell us about blood glucose and also the test A1C. Great question. So blood glucose is just the measure of sugar in our blood. There's kind of what we call preprandial or before you eat when it's fasting. There are certain targets for that. And then there's 
postprandial as well, looking for how high the blood sugar goes after we eat. All of our blood sugars rise a little bit after we eat, but there's good clear cutoffs for how high is too high. As opposed to the hemoglobin A1C, sugar attaches to a red blood cell, and red blood cells in our body last 90 days. So we go back and we look how much sugar is there, and we can extrapolate based upon the past 90 days what the blood sugars have been as long as you have otherwise normal red blood cells. So treating these kids is a fairly uh, complex uh, affair, and I guess that's why you are both here, because you have a team. You, you have a team approach, and who all is on the team? Obviously, Nurse Hansen. Who else? So we have our pediatric endocrinologists like uh, Dr. Creo, one of those, myself and uh, several other nurses. We have dietitians that work specifically with our kids that have uh, have type 1 diabetes. We have a pediatric social worker that uh, meets with all of them. And that one sometimes is a little harder to understand why we would have a social worker. But uh, some of that is just to help navigate insurance issues that might come up for families, um, helping financial issues because the the cost of diabetes and supplies can be pretty expensive. It might be helping them navigate school. What do public schools have to provide for kids, teenagers starting jobs? What do employers have to let them do while they're at work in order to manage their diabetes and things like that? So we do have a social worker with us. And then we, those are our folks that see our kids almost every visit that they come in. But then we also have uh, gastroenterologists. If somebody has celiac disease that we will reach out to, we have child psychologists. If there are other behavioral needs or, you know, anxiety, uh, depression, those mental health issues are increased with a chronic illness. Everything that you just listed off, the parents are basically in charge of making sure that those things happen. The, this has got to be, yeah. transition to coming from, you know, say you have a two-year-old diagnosed, it's the parents. And making that transition throughout pediatrics to by the time they're 18, it's the young adult that has control of their diabetes and everything that goes in between. So tell us what's involved. You obviously ha- have to track your blood sugars and you have to give insulin. How do you go about starting that whole program? Yeah, so great is kind of distinguishing between, again, the two types of diabetes, right? Type 2 being where there's insulin resistance versus type 1 where there's just lack of insulin from autoimmune attacks. Type 2 diabetes sometimes, depending upon how high the blood sugars have been, can be treated with medications by mouth to help the pancreas just work better. But if it's getting worse, some type 2 diabetics need to go on insulin as well, and all type 1 diabetics need insulin. We've tried for many years, but the only way to give insulin back is by shots. Um, There are different ways, though, to get that in. So the general fundamentals is that we give insulin back by shots or pumps, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, as well as... So there's no pill. There's no pill pill. for type 1 diabetes. So unlike a child's grandparent that has a pill to help their diabetes, for type 1, there's no pill. So you have to give insulin by injection. Injection. Fortunately, we're getting the technology is getting better and better and better. So there's alternate ways now to give insulin back by insulin pumps as well. Tell us about an insulin pump. The very basics for type 1 is doing injections and checking blood sugars by finger pokes. But as the technology, there's kind of two broad categories called glucose sensors and insulin pumps. And they're starting to become more and more integrated. So a while ago now, we've had insulin glucose sensors. There are different devices, there's different brand names, but they can stay on a child's body for up to 10 days 
and they're approved to make insulin dosing decisions off of. So they're always checking the blood sugars. And it's nice, too, because depending upon the brand, oftentimes it can go to multiple devices. So parents can have their child's blood sugar on their phones. The school nurse can have it as well. And so you're always seeing, and you can even set alarms with a lot of the brands as well, like a high blood sugar alarm or a low blood sugar alarm. Is yeah. it like a patch? Yeah, on the back of the arm. It, that's what I've seen. I, I, the, the arm is the most typical site, but we've had lots of creative places where you can put them as well. They <laughs> tend to work pretty well. But then you have to give yourself the, the insulin? We usually start patients on injections to get used to the insulin and getting used to kind of simple diabetes management. So we do have patients that just have the sensor and are doing injections about four times a day. But with the pump... Previously, pumps worked independently. That pump would kind of squirt out insulin a little bit, even when we're not eating. Our bodies always need a little bit of insulin, and then would have boluses when we eat. But now the technology is really coming along, where the first generation were that in the brands, if the child is getting too much insulin with a pump, it can cause a low blood sugar. And the first generation was that the pump would listen to the CGM, or the continuous glucose Glucose meter. And if it was predicting or the child was having a low blood sugar, the pump would shut off. So they would start to talk to each other. The second generation is that it was predicting if the glucose meter was sensing that the child was going to be low, it would shut the pump off before the child even had Mm -hmm. a low blood sugar. Now, the newest technology is what we call a closed loop, where they're always in communication every five minutes. The insulin, the child is getting insulin based upon really complex deep learning algorithms and always giving insulin based upon how, what it's learned from the child's patterns. Pretty incredible. So what's the, what's the biggest challenge, would you say, in treating these kids? Every challenge is different for every family. and But there's there are common themes. You know, just getting burnt out of diabetes, I think, is a really common one we see. Behavioral challenges with the littler children. Yeah, and I think sometimes with the pumps, we have to remember they still don't do it all. And so sometimes it's just merely they have to tell the pump how much they're eating when they eat it. And so for teenagers, they want to be like their friends. So it may be that I don't want to pull my pump out in front of my friends. I just want to have lunch. And so they may not be giving that insulin when they're eating, and that makes that automated part of things a little more challenging with the pumps. But really wanting to be be like their friends, I think, is is true in all age groups. And I'm sure they also realize that this is a lifelong issue. It's never going to get any better. Unless they have a pancreas transplant. So we're hoping the technology is getting better and better, and there's a lot out there right now for transplantation. The problem is to keep the transplant often requires more cumbersome methods than just having the technology. The technology is getting so good. Well, we know there are close to 200,000 children with diabetes in the United States, and it sounds like both type 1 and type 2 are becoming more common, unfortunately. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic pediatric endocrinologist Dr. Anna Creo and Nurse Janet Hansen. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, what a thoracic surgeon does. And a cystic fibrosis patient shares his story, how a new medication helped him get off the lung transplant list. Up next, an update on the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Joining us by telephone for an update on the coronavirus is Mayo Clinic infectious disease specialist and vaccine expert, Dr. Greg Poland. Is it fair to say that this virus is worse than we initially thought? Well, 
no, I don't, I don't think so in this regard. We certainly saw before it hit here what it was doing in China, and we have not had the level of disease or the severity that they had. There may have been people who thought, well, it won't happen here, but of course, infectious diseases do not respect borders. The symptoms? Tell us about those. Uh, Tom, that's a, it's a very good question because I think when people understand this, fear levels go down because fear per se is not helpful. The majority of people who get infected with this virus will never know it. The majority. They will have no or very minimal symptoms. The healthy population. Yeah, the healthy population. So typical symptoms are really identical to influenza. Sore throat, cough, fever, shortness of breath, those would be the typical symptoms. Typically, people become symptomatic about five days on average after they've been infected for five to ten days. So uh, on a public health level, it does seem like there's a lot of fear out there. What I have been uh, trying to explain to people is a concept that I call contextually appropriate layering of protection. And the idea is, you know, if you're in a small town in the Midwest, the the level of protection that you need to take is very different than if you're in a city that's having widespread outbreaks. Let's talk about what what we should be doing no matter what part of the country we are in. The key thing is to get a flu vaccine. And I would suggest that if you've not yet had a flu vaccine, that's the number one thing to do on your priority list today. The reason being is that those symptoms will be confused with SARS-CoV-2. You know, you want to cough into a disposable tissue or into the crook of your arm. You don't want to touch your face until you have washed your hands. And and by the way, I have never, ever, ever, ever seen a layperson wash their hands properly. And that's a problem because it says everybody thinks they know how to wash their hands, but they don't. Staying home from school or work if you're sick. These are really key things to do, regardless of where you live. Take appropriate precautions. We've had, what, a hundred-some deaths with influenza. We've already had about twenty to 30,000 deaths. We're not panicking. Even though influenza kills elderly people and people who have other diseases, it's just that people panic with the idea of a new virus circulating. So let's not do that. That doesn't help us. Let's instead learn what we can, be informed, and take appropriate precautions while we go about our daily living. When will a vaccine be available? My guess is that it will be for the next outbreak, not this one. This is not necessarily just seasonal. Well, we don't know yet, but I I think what we can say is coronaviruses are here to stay. It will happen again. Mayo Clinic Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Greg Poland. My pleasure. Cystic fibrosis, it's a rare, progressive, inherited disease that results in the formation of thick mucus, mucus that builds up in the lungs, the digestive tract, and other parts of the body. Now, the average life expectancy, unfortunately, of a person with cystic fibrosis is only about 44 years. But because of new treatments and medications, more people with CF are living longer, and some are having remarkable results with a new drug that's called Trakafta. 
Joining us in studio is cystic fibrosis patient, Mr. Tim Meyer from Bay City, Wisconsin, and Mayo Clinic pulmonologist, that's a lung specialist, Dr. Mark Wylam. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You know, you have an interesting story because uh, apparently your lung disease was bad enough that you were on the lung transplant list, and now you're not. Tell us how that happened. Back in October of last year, I was put on the lung transplant list. Our, our My numbers were pretty low. Um, they're around 28% uh, lung function. The low, Dr. Wylam, and how do you measure that? Lung function tests were measured in a pulmonary function laboratory, and anyone who's below 35% with cystic fibrosis gets a first look at the need for upcoming lung transplant. And is it common for people with CF to end up with a lung transplant being on that list? There's a lot of variation amongst the CF population, but of most of the patients who have the classic forms of cystic fibrosis, many will eventually require a lung transplant until this new modern pharmacologic era. Tim, how long had you been living with that diagnosis? Um, I was diagnosed at birth, so okay. uh, 35 years. And how do you make that diagnosis at birth? Well, present, presently, all states in the United States use newborn DNA screening. When Tim was born, that wasn't available, and he was diagnosed because of the clinical composition of his problems at birth, which I believe included intestinal obstruction. Mm-hmm. As I understand it, Tim, your, neither your mother nor your father had cystic fibrosis, but both of them were carriers. That's correct, yeah. So would that mean, Dr. Wylam, that he only had about a 25% chance of having cystic fibrosis? Exactly. And you had a sister. Yep, I had a sister. Uh, she lived uh, 24. She passed away from cystic fibrosis. Were you having a fair amount of difficulty breathing back in October? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, I was on oxygen 24 hours a day. Um, now I don't need it. What is life like when your lungs don't work? It's pure hell. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you can't breathe. You know, you're you're down in the dumps. You have no energy. You know, you just you don't want to you don't want to leave home. You know, with oxygen. Having had this disease for as long as you did, were there other treatments that you went through to try to control it? Um, just pretty much the basic, you know, medication treatments during the day. There wasn't really much out there to help more than you could, I guess. Were you able to hold a job at any point in time? So I, I haven't worked now in five years. We kind of got to that point where, you know, every time I tried working, I got sick. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't want to leave the other companies at bay, I guess you could say. You know, I feel good one day, but then the next day I felt like death. Dr. Wylam, what is cystic fibrosis doing to his lungs and to patients' lungs? Cystic fibrosis uh, creates a dry surface along the bronchial tubes that attracts mucus, bacteria, and eventually leads to their destruction from the infection that ensues. So the big problem has always been to sort of minimize the damage done by the bacteria and the sticky mucus, and that includes treatments to sort of thin the mucus, antibiotics, including, in Tim's case, multiple trips to the hospital for intravenous antibiotics, and daily chest physiotherapy with oscillating, vibrating devices and nebulized uh, inhaled treatments. Well, he looked so good today. Tell us about this new drug that he started how long ago, Tim? Just over two months ago. Now. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, Dr. Wylam, what is it? Well, it was 30 years ago that the cystic fibrosis community identified the gene for cystic fibrosis as a mutation in the protein that translates salt across the airway. And uh, 
20 years ago, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, the NIH, and some small drug startup companies now known as Vertex went after uh, trying to find small molecule correctors for the uh, channel that transmits chloride. And so, first of all, the drug made you feel a ton better. What is the day like when you find, I don't have to be on this lung transplant list anymore? Yeah, it was... uh it was an early Christmas present. You know, we found out the 16th of December. Um, I had met with Dr. Wylam, and he was pretty ecstatic as well, just to see the progress that CF has made. Did the drug start working right away? So that's the funny part is, um, for myself, I felt a relief within the first hour. Oh, my God. My uh, my, my sinuses started running within an hour. I, it, it was amazing. Does this drug work for all patients with cystic fibrosis? Great question. There are about 30,000 patients in the United States with cystic fibrosis. This drug now will expand treatment to 27,000 or 90% of all the patients with CF in the U.S. How many CF patients? are waiting for lung transplants. Do you know that number? Every day in the United States, there's 1,100 people waiting for transplant, but cystic fibrosis probably only represents about 10% of those. But if 90% of the people who have CF could be helped by this drug, is that what you just said? Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. So, and you've gained, what, 23 so pounds? So I've gained 23 pounds. Uh, when I first started out, I was 119 pounds, and now I'm 142. You've got a quality of life now that you probably haven't known for quite some time. So I, I've, I've had a good outlook at life, but now I, I can dream big. You know, I... We couldn't travel because I had to stay within four hours of Rochester. Now, sky's the limit. You had to stay that close in case a loan yeah, became available. Yep. Okay. Yep. You definitely, as a child, were raised yeah. basically to be a CF patient mm-hmm. yeah. for as long as you could live. Yeah, so when I was born, uh, Mom and Dad were always told that there'd be a medicine that came out. I personally didn't think I'd ever see it. It's still not a just in time. No, exactly, exactly. (laughs) It's still not a cure, but it's the closest we've ever been. Will he be on this drug for life? Apparently, until the until the next generation comes along, or we find a a novel way to sort of recorrect the uh, the basic defect. Is this a drug you take by mouth? Yes, Uh, every day. Yep, uh, two pills in the morning, one at night. And it's changed your life. Absolutely. Dr. Wylam, 30,000 patients out there. How many have already started on this drug? Do you know? Good question, but I think it's it's going to be close to about 65% have gotten there right now. Remember this, the drug was uh, studied and, and first published back about uh, October 2018. It was uh, November 2019 that it was approved by the FDA, and we, we've subsequently now pushed it out as fast as we can to as many patients as can be. So it's... A, and it's so a fast-track. That was a fast-track. Tim started taking it right away. You, you were one of the first patients that started, obviously. Yep. Wow. All right. The amazing story of 35-year-old Tim Meyer, born with cystic fibrosis. His condition gradually worsened, and his lungs got to the point where he needed a lung transplant. And then you were started on this new drug called Trikafta. Recently approved by the FDA because it was fast-tracked. Now you're off the lung transplant list. What a great story, Tim. We're all so happy for you. Thank you. Our thanks to Tim Meyer and Mayo Clinic lung specialist, pulmonologist, to Dr. Mark Wylam. Thank you. We'll take a short break. When we return, we'll get an overview of thoracic surgery from a Mayo Clinic expert. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome. 
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. What does a thoracic surgeon do? You're the surgeon. Yeah, you tell well, me. I'm going to tell you. They treat patients with diseases of the chest, ah. and they treat primarily lung cancer, but that's not all. They also treat diseases of the chest wall and the esophagus. That's and- the tube. That goes from the mouth to the stomach. Oh, Trace, you know all the big words now. I got it. <laughs> Joining us by telephone from the Mayo Clinic in Arizona is thoracic surgeon Dr. John DeCuna. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Great to be here. It's good to have you on the program. Let's let's start out with lung cancer, and I would assume that if you can cut it out, that's a good thing. Absolutely. Uh, lung cancer is a major uh, killer of um, patients, and so. Um, you know, whenever you can catch it early, uh, you can get taking it out to performing a surgical resection is the best chance for a cure. And you have to be able to uh, do that before the cancer has spread, right? If the cancer has already spread elsewhere, they wouldn't be a candidate to have the lung removed or the cancer removed from the lung? Correct. Typically, if the cancer has left the uh, chest and gone to the lymph nodes in the center of the chest or even beyond that, God forbid, uh, that it, uh, surgery doesn't really uh, do much to help with outcomes. Uh, and really, chemotherapy and radiotherapy have more of a uh, therapeutic uh, role at that point. That's what I was just going to ask. Do you start with surgery or do you start with chemotherapy? Good question. It always depends. Uh, if it's early stage, that is uh, stage one or stage two, where the lymph nodes really are just locally involved, we start with surgery because that's the best outcome. And if the lymph nodes in the middle of the chest or beyond are involved, then we start with chemo and radiation. And sometimes patients can be a surgical candidate if they have a good response. So what happens, tell our audience, if you remove part of the lung, don't you end up with a hole there and isn't it harder to breathe? We get this often in clinic. Much like other organs such as the liver, you can remove a lobe of the lung safely in many patients. And their quality of life, after once they recover from surgery, is not impacted. The body accommodates the remaining lobe shift to fill the space, and patients go on their usual daily life. The challenge is in patients with lung disease, which is sometimes why they come to us with a cancer. Sometimes they're not always a candidate for surgery because we can't take out, for example, a full lobe and leave them oxygen-dependent. That just doesn't do them any good. So there are some more advanced techniques, like just taking a portion of the segment of the lung and things like that that we often employ for those patients. And how many lobes do we have? We have three lobes on the right and two on the left. And you can take one pretty much with impunity. In, in an appropriate patient. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. The rest of the lung expands to fill the space. Correct. And you might say, well, how can you not have breathing problems? Well, I, what I always tell patients, you know, if you're a professional athlete, you're going to notice a difference, you know, but... The lung has a tremendous ability to accommodate, and the blood flow gets redistributed to the remaining lobes and with physical therapy and recovery do quite well. All right. We know that the esophagus is inside the uh, chest, the tube that connects the mouth to the stomach. And some people, unfortunately, it's relatively rare. I think maybe only 20,000 cases a year in the United States. But cancer of the esophagus, you treat that also? Correct. Yes, we take that out, too. What about the usual symptoms? What's interesting about esophageal cancer is it's actually what I would characterize an epidemic. It's on the rise quite substantially, and a part of it is related to our diets and reflux disease. So reflux disease is a predisposition for esophageal cancer. So what symptoms develop is a typical patient has reflux for many, many years, and then they come in with difficulty swallowing, 
and that's when they get an endoscopy to oftentimes what's diagnosed with a, with an esophageal cancer, unfortunately. So reflux, meaning that the acid from the stomach refluxes, regurgitates back up into the lower end of the esophagus, and that irritation ultimately causes cancer. Correct, correct. All right, and you said you could take it out? Yeah, you can take out the esophagus, and that's what we prefer to do, much like lung cancer for esophageal cancer. We like to operate on early-stage patients, catching things early before the cancer has had a chance to spread, and we actually resect the esophagus and bring the stomach up uh, high into the chest to form a hookup, and really what you're doing is replacing the esophagus and using the stomach as a conduit. But again, uh, the candidates would be people whose disease had not already spread elsewhere, correct? Correct, correct. And what's the uh, survival, overall survival rate for patients with uh, esophageal cancer? It's not so great, is it? It's not so great, but your best chance is with surgery when we can get at it. And, you know, the, the survival rates are improving. Again, it's different for depending on your stage of disease that you present, but in the 20% five-year survival is not uncommon. Um, and that doesn't sound that great, but... The, the other option is to aren't, aren't that great either, and so there's a lot of work being done on newer therapies, minimally invasive approaches like we employ to try to optimize patients' outcomes. Are you saying that the, most esophageal cancers are at the bottom part of the esophagus? In the U.S., they are. They're mostly where the esophagus meets the stomach. So how uh, do you fix because of that reflux? How do you fix those cancers then that are higher up in the esophagus? Early stage cancers that are higher up in the esophagus also get surgery. Uh, if they're really high in the esophagus up in the neck, they oftentimes just best respond to chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Difficult to operate on them way up there. Correct. All right, let's talk about operations for lung failure. And I'm thinking about people uh, with uh, emphysema. You, you have an operation for those patients? We do. Uh, and those are patients who really go through a multidisciplinary evaluation that includes pulmonary medicine, or surgery, and others. And when a patient comes in with emphysema, they may be a candidate for different interventions. Sometimes our pulmonary colleagues will put in bronchial valves to try to basically take that area in the upper lung and not have a wasted breath go to it since the blood flow is preferential to the lower lungs. And sometimes patients are surgical candidates for that, where we go in and we resect that area of the lung in the upper lung fields and kind of fool the body into basically removing that lung that's not being used, and then the blood flow goes to the good lung. When that doesn't work, the final common pathway is often consideration for a lung transplantation. All right, one other topic, lung infections. Do you ever become involved? Absolutely. That's a major component to our practices also when we're either having infections from uh, pneumonia, which has gone bad, or other infections, and we see this a lot in different patients. Oftentimes, you're able to do these surgical procedures with minimally invasive techniques, right? And tell us how you do that. Correct. We use advanced techniques through small incisions and scopes and specialized instrumentation to perform the, uh, the operations minimally invasive. And nowadays, we're also employing robotic techniques in selected uh, cases to perform the operations. And what that leads to is basically an enhanced post-operative recovery uh, and a quicker return to daily work and daily function 
And I also think it has a less of a pronounced effect on the body and the immune system that allows patients to recover quicker and get on to the next treatment that's required for many uh, conditions. Incredible advances. Well, we know that thoracic surgeons treat diseases of the chest and the esophagus, and now they're able to do at least most procedures through minimally invasive techniques rather than having to spread the ribs to get in and do uh, their work. Our thanks to thoracic surgeon Dr. John DeCuna from the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Thanks, Dr. DeCuna. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.